My people, my people, welcome to your week in IndyCar listener Q&A show coming out of the Rev Group Grand Prix of Road America. That would be the delightful Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin. Oh, I can't wait to get back there. Truly one of my favorite motor racing venues on good old planet Earth. And it sure did not disappoint. Now did it? Holy cow! What a race! 55 laps. We're thinking, uh, come on, 55, it's not a million, right? How much could happen in those 55? Well, uh, for the folks who wrote the script, apparently a lot. And coming out of Detroit, which seemed like we reached maximum drama. Absolute maximum drama, right? Couldn't be any crazier. No, wrong. Uh, anyways, I'm still smiling like a big old idiot just thinking about how it delivered yet again and positively negatively however you might want to look at it uh, it delivered but that delivery cost it certainly cost for some drivers and for some others well they got what do you call it is it lucky does luck it really exist do we live in this planet where everything's just totally random and hey, Joseph Newgarden, your gearbox, yeah, it doesn't want to do the whole race. Is that luck? Is that finger trouble, as it's referred to? Someone, multiple people, maybe missing something, not doing something right? I mean, the car left the grid and went and raced and did a whole bunch of stuff. So I don't know if we could attribute it to that. So again, Alex Pillow, he was there, thereabouts the whole day drove his behind off he's our guest this week by the way i'll put out the call for questions here on tuesday but right i mean you can't quote blame him for being right there on that last restart and really piggybacking hard with new garden over those last stretch of laps and look the door opened he went through it two-time winner uh, there's some folks at the back who didn't deserve to be there there's just oh a lot of fun. So we're going to get into all of it here in just a sec. As usual, want to say a huge thank you to you for sending in your questions. Um, yeah, we are at about 5,000 words this week, so not as insane as last week. I think we were right on 100, maybe just a little over 100 questions, according to our pal Jim Kaiser, who puts together the questions for me. So a bunch, a heck of a bunch. We're not going to do two episodes this week. We're just going to try and do one and enjoy it and hopefully get through everything. So uh, in whatever amount of time, less than two hours is the goal. Uh, Cooper Tires, huge thanks for those who might have missed it last week. Delightful news that they have re-upped already for 2022. So they're going to be back yet again. I think that's year five, something like that. Uh, yeah, been here for a long time. Thank you to them. The Justice Brothers as well, the support that they provide is just immeasurable. And, yeah, I love them. I really do. If you don't know about them, you really might check them out. And this isn't a sponsor plug. They might not have any products that you want or need, but their history, the Justice family, that's their real name. It's not a made-up thing. Uh, Ed Justice, his brothers, uh, his father, I should say, uncles, you name it, just the whole history of the Justice family it's fascinating entwined in 
North American motor racing for long, long before I was born. Now a two-time winning family and a company at the Indy 500. So anyways, justicebrothers.com. Might just check it out. Just some cool reading and uh, history education. And then finally, our pals at torontomotorsports.com who are at Road America at turn five. And based on the photos and the reports I got back from a lot of listeners and readers, it looks like they were having a good old jamboree of fun. So just huge thanks to everybody as usual. Last quick little note. Thanks as well for everybody who's taken a look and uh, bought a couple things on the new marshallpruittpodcast.com merchandise page. It's still not finished by any means, but there's a lot of IndyCar stuff there, a lot of sports car stuff. Uh, going to try and break it down into sections here soon so it's easier to go by what you might be interested in, from stickers to magnets to buttons to memorabilia and Lord knows what else. Got some cool new things coming, some large format stickers. I guess you could call them bumper stickers, but people don't really do that anymore, so I'll just call them large format stickers coming some cool retro cart IndyCar era stuff that just makes my eyes super happy. I'm going to have some cartoon anvil stickers arriving here in the next week, week and a half. And my recommendation is get them. And then when you see your favorite drivers who are having a bad time, give them to them and tell them to put those cartoon anvil protection stickers on everything they own. So anyways, trying to build that out. If you can, Take a look. If there's something you like, take it home, please. It's greatly appreciated. And with that said, what do we do? A little bit of music bed. That's right. I love our intro. i gotta got to come up with a new one for next year, but I just love this one. Uh, where are we going to go first? Well, I say we go to Andrew Miller on Facebook. He's bringing up something spooky. Says, can we call it a Penske curse yet? Got to admit, I think that's the I think that's the answer, Andrew. You know, they only have sixteen or seventeen Indy five hundred wins. Uh, you know, ninety seven IndyCar championships, twenty seven thousand IndyCar wins. Oh, those poor people. Speaking with a friend today, uh, Taz Harvey, who's a, a longtime racer, and he was like, "Oh, I feel so bad for him." And I said, "I do too. I, I genuinely do." The the empathetic person inside of me truly feels for Joseph Newgarden and Will Power who've lost three total races since in a little over a week for some obscure reasons that really not their faults in any way shape or form and then you go well you know I guess you can feel sympathy for billionaires and super wealthy people who have a lot of success but of course, they want more, and does it really matter whether you're talking about a zillionaire team or an underdog? I don't think so. I think it's just a case of, hey, uh, Joseph Newgarden, as hardcore of a racer as you're going to find, had that one absolutely sewn up, and it goes totally sideways. Can't blame him for that. Uh, I've heard a suggestion of what happened in the gearbox sounds really routine and unspectacular so but nonetheless uh you look at what happened to powers documented electronic side you look at what happened to new garden late detroit round two with just some strategery that 
I didn't know if I thought it was ever going to work out, but nonetheless didn't work out, but whatever. Here's what we know, Andrew. And I, again, I appreciate the, the cheeky opening question that Jim's given us here. Can we call it a curse yet? What do we take away from the last three races? Team Penske can absolutely win, should have won, will win here. They are ready, have been ready. Bizarre circumstances keeping them out of that possibility. So that's a big deal, right? Compared to, hey, here's this team, and they've been trying, but they've been coming up short. They're doing okay. They qualified fourth, and they ran third. But, boy, they really had nothing for the winner or second place. That'd be one thing. If we're just talking about Penske eh, missing something, it's not the case, though. So call it a curse, but we'll call it a short-term curse because mid-Ohio absolutely could be a a Penske 1-2-3 on the podium. I don't think anyone would be surprised. So, yeah, it's a curse with one of little ticking time bomb thing where the curse blows up and goes away, I think. So, yeah, but what happens, right? What happens if we get through mid-Ohio and, I don't know, Nashville? Uh, and who knows? Get to the middle of August and they still haven't won? We might have to revisit this curse part, Andrew. Uh, let's go to Brian Burrell. How you doing, Brian? MP, hope you and Mrs. Pruitt are well and uh, getting to enjoy some normalcy. Well, I we endeavor, my friend, to uh, get back to a day, a uh, point in our lives where normalcy is just that. Uh, it says, I'm sure it's a hot topic with DJ Willie P having an ECU issue. It says, I know they said it was due to the wrong sequences. Uh, and then Joseph going into emergency mode, talking about that in terms of the gearbox. Is that also caused by the ECU? McLaren makes the ECU. It's a spec ECU. They've been using it. Uh, since this brand new formula started not necessarily loved but whatever unrelated to the transmission uh there's a gcu gearbox control unit but as i understand uh this was not an electronically related problem as i understand it was a mechanical problem and so therefore totally unrelated between what happened to will at detroit and what happened to Joseph at Road America. Uh, let's go to Matthew Lawrenson. Matthew, how you doing, brother? I enjoy your uh, questions, by the way. Matthew says, Marshall, we often wonder which small teams have a chance at winning races. Which tracks do you think the plucky underdogs of Team Penske are going to succeed at in the second half of 2021? I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Toronto. Uh, I think they're going to just dominate there. Now, wouldn't that be hilarious if they, quote, canceled the race, but RP just sent the trucks and said, all right, well, we're going to go hold a race, and, you know, uh, we finish one, two, three, four. What do you know? Huh? He'd never do that. It's, again, humor. Boy, i got to tell you, and I'm not talking about any of you, but the amount of, quote, notes and uh, little emails and texts and DMs that I get from folks in the series uh, after an episode or a rewind column on race or whatever, like, lighten up, people, for real. Uh, whatever hyper-serious headspace you're living in, uh, I don't know what it gets you in life other than misery and me looking at you like uh, you're missing something, friends, because if you're this wound up about absolutely nothing, 
I, I fear how you would respond to real things in life. So anyways, little sidebar means nothing. Totally abstract. But thanks, Matthew, for opening that door. Uh, let's see. Again, could it be mid-Ohio? Totally, right? Um, Nashville's the big question mark, so who knows? Indy GP road course for sure. Worldwide Technologies Raceway, better known as Gateway in Madison, Illinois. Um, I'd say within the next three or four races for sure, they should have at least one win, if not more, those plucky underdogs. Uh, our pal Stitch Turner says, where is the chalice of excellence? And uh, is it to blame for Team Penske's woes? think so, Stitch. I think we found it been a weird thing right that was made a lot out of and whatever I, I had joseph on the show last or asked him about or whatever uh evasive right i didn't want to talk about it too much and this that and the other and yeah i don't know um i, I realize that such a thing could you know wear out after a little while all right we give it to a new person at each race and you do that for a couple of years and you know does it does it contain the same feeling of speciality probably not but nonetheless should the chalice of excellence be glued to the crown of the refueler's helmet on joseph's car so at mid ohio at every pit stop We not only see the car being fueled, but the chalice of excellence riding high on top of his head for all to see. I think that might be, coming back to Andrew's opener here, a little callback, if there's a curse, I realize that Will Power, Simon Pagenaud, or Scotty McLaughlin could also win, but just saying. uh, I think this is how we ensure the curse is gone weld that sucker super glue it um get some of that stuff from those late night infomercials whatever the stuff that they put on the bottom of the boat uh with the the see-through hole to make sure the water doesn't yeah whatever that product's called use some of that i don't know something seal use it hell uh wander down to dale coin racing and get some seal master stuff whatever that is I don't care. Get it on top of the refueler's helmet. The refueler is pretty tall, too. Let it stand high and proud. Ward off all evil curse-related things. Joseph Newgarden, winner at Mid-Ohio. I think we just did it for him. Stitch, you're the person who should take credit if they win. Uh, Jim Kaiser, our man who does put the questions together, who also rose to prominence on the show with his haiku. He sends in more. Road America left Joseph Newgarden blue just like Detroit did. There you go, Jim. Uh, And you even made the word blue blue uh, using Microsoft Word. You are just all over it today, my friend. All right, we are switching gears. (laughs) I just pulled an Oliver Askew. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Ah, I didn't even think about that. I really did. I'd tell you if that was a pre-planned. Uh, oops, it wasn't. Uh, sorry, we're switching gears. God, you are an asshole. I'm sorry, earmuffs. Uh, yeah, sorry. Didn't mean to say switching gears, knowing that that's what took the race away from Joseph. 
Um, it's just like riding a bicycle, says Oliver Askey. That was the best line of the weekend, wasn't it? Uh, and he genuinely just pooped his pants when he realized what he said. And then Renus. I hope you all who maybe didn't know Renus that well before he came to IndyCar, I hope you're getting to see his personality. Like, the kid is just marvelous. And that's nothing new. But just, he's got a big, fun, playful personality. And it's just been awesome to see him trying to deal with adversity. And instead of going inwards and and shrinking and being aggro and frustrated that he can't play race car, he's just gone the opposite direction of, you know, publicly just trying to have fun with it. Because what else can you do? So he gave uh, Oliver a little bit of a little bit of uh, the business after that little gaffe. And that was fun. And anyways, love the kid. Uh, Let's shift gears i'm just gonna stick with it let's shift gears to a question from cold phone from reddit first time question asker here awesome i always love that we've got a couple more coming too so uh this makes me super happy uh says two questions regarding the number seven Aaron mclaren sp car given rosenquist's accelerator slack slash brake issues in detroit one Askew's powertrain issue in detroit two and then Magnuson's, you say engine failure, but we'll just say power failure, uh, wrote America, will there need to be a more thorough inspection of that car? At what point does a team need to be concerned about a systemic problem? Uh, all right, we'll uh, pick up the second question in just a moment. Yeah, uh, that's the norm. It really is. And this is the hard part of managing a team that is on the rise, but not all the way there, right? They're still learning, still building. You could say that would be evidenced by the fact that while they were decent last weekend, they were revelations at Detroit really showed that, hey, we can be part of the big four and then showed up at Road America and weren't really there. Still, right, still going to be a part of their story. Feels like they should have that ironed out by the end of the year, start the new season in a more consistent place, but we're going to have that boom and bust type thing with them because they're still learning how to be Aero McLaren SP, not just SP. So not totally out of the woods in that regard. And so I mentioned that because while the team has come an incredibly long way from where they were of being sporadic threats, You now have a team that's coming together, doing big things. The feelings are good. The gelling is good. The everything is good. Team president, Taylor Kyle, hugely responsible for that gelling and formation of of the awesome stuff that's happening. And then you have the, okay, boy, we stepped on our, parts that hurt uh, a couple times in a row here. What is going on? Can we find a through line? That's the first and natural thing to do. It's not to scream and yell and point fingers and blame and you're suspended, you're fired, whatever. It's okay. Sadly, we need to do our CSI Detroit and CSI Elkhart Lake. We need to find out. 
are there, as you mentioned, systematic things happening in the preparation of the vehicle? What did we miss? Not saying that they missed anything at Detroit, but the way it was presented in their words, in some of the visual evidence, it just looked like something got missed. Maybe not. Maybe it's just something breaking. Who knows? Whatever it was, wasn't a good look. That's why they didn't want to go into detail about it. Got it. Second race at Detroit, as it was presented, there was something internal with the motor that it seems like was going wrong. Did we get a lot of details about that? No, we did not. Okay, whatever. Again, not a big deal. Would say those two unrelated. Could be totally wrong, but just based on what it sounded like, hard to find a connection between Saturday and Sunday's results. What happened this Sunday at Road America? Hard to say. I don't know. Um... Not a lot of specifics put on it. We've figured out, I think it's fair to say, Cold Phone, which is a very interesting screen name. Stylistically, team is not about transparency. Okay? Again, it's their choice. They don't have to tell us anything. But we don't know. We don't know if it was the such and such that came loose. Did something rub? Uh terms of wiring and something rubbed through and spark and shut off was again who knows i don't know i wish i did but i don't i'll also admit that in the little over 24 hours since the race ended i I haven't made an effort to try and ferret this one out would just say though that regardless of what i know you know whatever they may or may not tell the public yeah none of those things actually matter what does matter is for taylor and his managers to take a really hard look if they don't already have all the answers which they may but if there's any question uh to spend some time immediately to say are there connecting items did we make different versions of the same mistake preparation wise or are these three totally random things? Say the, the engine parts sounds like not something you would necessarily attach to them. But are these things where you go, yep, and we now need to make some changes? Whether it's personnel, we're going to take someone out and put someone new in. We're going to do some new training on something. Again, these are just generic answers, but things that you would expect to happen if the team found some sort of consistent issue bringing all three failures together. I doubt that's the answer, but we will soon know uh, based on whether we see any changes on pit lane uh, or not. I don't think there would be, but just saying there will be some visual evidence if the team has come to a decision that says, uh, we're going to uh, make some adjustments. Uh, your next item here to close, bum that Felix has had a rough season so far after the bold move going from Ganassi to Air McLaren SP. It says, I know most of the issues have been out of his control, but what kind of implications, if any, are there for his IndyCar future? 
Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a number out of his control. There have been some in his control as well. Um, that's where I'm mildly concerned for my favorite short Swedish IndyCar driver, uh, making that distinction compared to my favorite tall Swedish IndyCar driver, that being uh, Marcus Ericsson. I'm actually not exactly sure how tall Linus Lundqvist is, but he's going to be an IndyCar driver sometime soon, so I'll have to come up with, I don't know, is he medium size? We'll figure it out. We'll get there. Um, Rehash a little bit of what we spoke about last week, I think. I don't know, maybe the week before. This stuff blends together for me sometimes, but you have the sympathy side, of course, of what happened with Felix, the injury already on a pretty rough slide if we're talking about the season, and then this happens. There's definitely going to be some sympathy, as there should be, and I do expect him to be back from mid-Ohio. I don't think there's going to, I don't think there's any question that he'll be back in the car in mid-Ohio. Then he has the tough part of a spotlight of, hey, we're looking for, to see how you're doing, how you're performing. Is everything okay with you physically? Is there anything slowing you down as a lingering effect of that crash? If that's obvious, whether it's a limp or an arm on a sling or a whatever else, I think folks will cut him some slack. But, and this is the, the but, <laughs> the but that I'm scared about. He was having a rough time prior to that crash. As you mentioned, number of things, not his fault, nothing to do with him, you name it. Some other ones where you go, brother, that's 100% on you. You sped, you spun, you this, you that, right? So kind of a mixed bag. One where you go, okay, hard to say, all bad, all good. We're in the middle, but wherever you might want to apply blame or absolution we're 20th in the standings and it's hard to ignore when the teammate is p4 p3 leading the championship as he did p2 now but still it's been a huge chasm so the hope coming into mid-ohio to close here is he's going to be at full strength able to perform as we expect, which is a top 10 guy, top six guy, seven guy, and do what we've seen him do many times before in his two years with Chip Ganassi Racing. I'll use the word unfortunately again. Unfortunately, we have not seen any of those things happen with Aero McLaren SP. So everything that we can point to and say, yep, that's your metric, that's your number, that's your proof that Felix Rosenquist is a badass and can do badass things in an Indy car. That's all history we're having to rely on. So there's no way that he loses speed or the ability to drive a race car from one year to the next. Mention the start of the season how was I was pretty well convinced from what I saw uh, in testing that, hey, uh, 
it looks like the team has really leaned towards Pato's setup preferences, and that's not something the average human being can drive. Uh, had that confirmed by Taylor Kyle not too long ago in an article, and I'm not saying like this is, oh, we've uncovered a bad thing, just saying that, hey, uh, this might not be a car while changing teams and having to adapt to things. This might not be a car that makes a lot of sense to Felix's driving needs. And so then naturally you would go through time. Can't say how long because it's different for every driver and every team, but go. Th- it's going to take some time, usually a couple months minimum, but it's going to take a little while to start to find things that make sense to you. Adapt our our approach to engineering to complement you and your needs so that you can feel totally at home in the car and get the most out of it and put up the great results that we've seen from you in the past uh, at Chip Ganassi Racing. And if that's not happening, then we need to acknowledge that, okay, are we going to be able to get there? Are we going to be able to modify things enough to get you to a place where you're happy with what how we do things and what we're doing, or not? Remember, it took Simon Pagano a little while at Team Penske. Totally different than what he had at the team we know today. Is Aaron McLaren SP? It spun his head that first year. He was nowhere that first year. Luckily, multi-year contract. Things came good in 2016. Champion. Everything was great. But it took him a year of us going, dude, what is going on? <laughs> you were fifth in the championship last year with the very small, by comparison, Schmidt team. And now you're where? We, we don't even see you most weekends. And you're at Penske. What? So it's not an abnormal thing. It, it just isn't a high-frequency thing, right? It doesn't happen all the time. Quick driver, winning driver, goes to new team, is nowhere year one, then hopefully finds the thing year two, they're better. It doesn't happen a lot. It just looks like that's what's happening here. And just to close, I really do hope that the team has patience and that they're not too revved up to make sure that they have someone who can be there with Pato right away running at the front of the field. If they are, barring some wins and constant podiums, we might really truly need to be concerned about his long-term future there. Let's go to Sandy Luchart. How you doing, Sandy, from Facebook? Sandy says, hi, MP. I first started to follow IndyCar when Olivier Gruyard and Nigel Mansell made the switch from F1 in the early 90s. Oh, that's so awesome, Sandy. Anytime we get an Olivier Gruyard reference, oh, my face is just going to light up with a smile. He wasn't a bad Formula One driver, was he? He wasn't great, but... You know, he might have had the best hair of the era for sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think definitely uh, best hair award no matter what. Anyways, back then, no internet and only the results in L'Equipe on the Tuesday edition. All to say, I really appreciate the podcast and thanks for feeding my passion for IndyCar and your insightful knowledge and wit. Well, you know, come on, don't say stuff like that. That's nice and normal and i don't do well with compliments sweetie to say though uh first time question says uh romagro sean is impressing this year 
Pagano is in the hunt, but not impressing. And Sebastian is having a tough time at Foyt. What are the chances of three French IndyCar drivers in 2022? Wishing you and your wife all the best. Well, hmm. Boy, we could blow the show open for the next hour talking about this one, Sandy. But we, uh, we'll, we'll keep it as, as compact as we can. Everything Roma is saying and, and sharing and giving us, the, as you say, the uh, impressing year he's had, the impression that he keeps giving is that all he wants is more. And I can say that all I want to see is more of Roma. I would love to see him full time without a doubt. Obviously, uh, getting to do the uh, gateway oval at the end of the year is going to tell us uh, whether he wants to do that next year or not. In that interview we did just, I think, the day before Detroit kicked off, closing question was about next year and just future in general. Hey, you know, what are your thoughts? Not necessarily asking you what you're going to commit to, but do you want to come back? Um anything obligation wise there. And he said, you know, do definitely want to come back. Did say that, you know, there's nothing obligating him to anyone at this point, And those are things that have to be figured out. Would I say there's a strong chance he'll be back with coin. I feel like that's the case where I believe, and it's just a hashtag me personally. It's a personal belief compared to a professional one. I think that gateway event is going to potentially answer a lot of questions about his future in IndyCar. If he loves it, if he goes well, if he shows aptitude, you know, all right, well, cool. We know he's a beast on road and street courses, and we can now say that he's taken to his first oval and did well, or I don't even know if it matters where he finishes, but just goes out there, isn't going backwards, but is going forward a little bit. I wonder how much that might pique the interest of other team owners. If you look at Andretti Autosport, they've got four full-time drivers this year. Will there be the same four full-timers there in 2022? Know a couple of them, that being Colton and Rossi, Longer-term deals. Hunter Ray on a one-year. See what happens there. Hinch, obviously, bringing great sponsors to the party. Hope that things improve there, even if he has the ability to bring budgets for the next many years. We know that Michael Andretti is a little bit fickle about such things, excluding his son, right? Uh... When things weren't going super well with Zach Veach, uh, we saw. And I, Look, I'm not totally happy with how things went down with Zach. I don't know if anybody is. But I can say what Michael did was look at what was in the best interest of his team. What can I do that is going to be the most competitive and make the sponsors the happiest? So I just mentioned these things because I don't know if we're going to see all four back. It might be three, might be two. Again, I don't know. That might, again, there may be no change. Perfect. Everything's great. Everyone's happy. Kumbaya. But if Michael's trying to look at upgrading, feeling that, all right, we need to be more competitive. 
Could a Romain Groschon be someone that he's actively trying to recruit if provided he's available once the season's up? I have no idea if and what options Dale may or may not have. He's pretty famous for putting people under uh, options that favor him and not them. Romain, though, I would think is smart enough to have not entered into such a thing. But again, I'm just curious. I think Gateway's going to tell us so much, Sandy about Romain and whether, hey, Team Penske, you mentioned Simon Pagano. Would Simon, is he going to be back? I don't know. We know that Roger has said he intends to stay at four cars. That's great news. We know that Scotty McLaughlin, we expect him to be here for a while, and I hope things only go in the right direction for him. He's a ball of awesome power. He's mad as can be, but he's on a new contract which is amazing joseph isn't going anywhere he's the present well he's been the past but he's the present and the future of that team could roma be on penske's radar i think gateway is going to tell us a lot i mean they were not averse to saying hi young kid from new zealand who's excellent in v8 supercars who has no idea how to drive an oval uh, we're going to coach you up, and we're going to have you come over here as a full-timer, and you're going to look pretty darn impressive, and he finished on the podium in his first oval. Would Romain's lack of overall oval experience be a detriment to a Team Penske? I don't think so. Why? Uh, Hey, there aren't a ton of ovals on the schedule at the moment. We hope that changes, but knowing that the calendar is road and street course heavy, in the fact that Roma has, on numerous occasions this year, beaten up his drivers on those road and street courses, um, I think, I think, just purely in my own brain, it's not professional. I'm not tipping my hand. Oh, I got the secret scoop that Team So and So is trying to hire Roma, but I just wonder. I wonder if the guy keeps doing like he does. Talent like that rarely stays that far down in the paddock. And so, again, none of this is a, a disrespect or discredit to Dale Coyne uh, racing. It's the opposite. It's a huge credit. I mean, this guy, we know, phenomenally talented. They're giving him the goods, right? Not, not every race weekend. That's why they're a smaller team. They're not able to do this every weekend. But by and large, yeah. So, what I expect a Mike Land ready. Or Roger Penske might be scratching their head saying, Romain Groschon. Hmm. I do. I do. I do. I do. Uh, let's see. Where else do we go in this subject here? Well, let's talk about a certain Sebastian Bourdais. Um, I feel for our French fry. I know that the team is trying incredibly hard. Like, really, truly, incredibly hard to give him the best car possible. Also have to acknowledge that, boy, they sure have been having more than their fair share of maladies this year. Um, I'll just share this because, I I don't know, I feel compelled to share this. Uh, Sebastian and I haven't had a chance to catch up for a little while or speak on any kind of regular basis. It's usually a quick little text 
and it's usually not much about racing. It might be an update about my wife, uh, or if he has a, like, he qualified well at Road America. I don't know. It might be just a simple, hey, but nice job. Nothing more than that. I should just say this, because while it might not seem like it's possible or true or otherwise, he does wall thing, things off in terms of team and insider info, and this is what's really going down. And I don't ask. Some of it's because, I shouldn't say some of it, probably all of it is because the team knows how close we are. And so if I'm writing about all these little detailed insider things or hinting at some things that only someone deep inside the team would know, again, it's pretty obvious, right? It would be obvious if, all right, gee, wonder where Pruitt got that. So we don't even go there. Uh, It's not, again, I'm just sharing. So I wish I could say, here's the thing or two or five or whatever, at the Foyt team that I know they need to do or fix or whatever, because that's what Seb's told me, hasn't been the case. So from what I've been able to glean externally and input from outside the team, um, it just looks like, yes, they're trying very hard, but I don't know if that's actually a thing we can place value in. Because at this level, everybody's trying hard. Everyone is exerting insane amount of effort, sleepless nights, etc., etc., etc. Everyone's going super hard. So I don't think we can really just say, well, they're trying, but uh, they're coming up short uh, too often. But hey, they're trying. As I've said more than once this year, the people keeping score of the championship points do not care. Absolutely do not care why you failed Team X to deliver the goods at whatever race on whatever day. They don't care. Wherever you finished, that's what you get. And just been a little bit of not an awesome honeymoon phase, I would say. It's great, obviously, to start the year with a fifth at a tenth, which certainly could have been better at St. Pete. Had a little bit of a happy rise with 11th, the first round in Detroit, but it's been a lot of not great. Um, 500 was not wonderful. Uh, Pit stops have been a lingering thing with the team for a little while. I mean, there's... What I would say is this about what I've observed about the 14-car program. And it is. They seem to exemplify an IndyCar team that has not made all the necessary adjustments to this super modern era where there are no margins left. Where the young drivers in particular are just at maximum, quadruple maximum attack at all times. Right, I know Renus obviously fell back, was fifth in the championship, uh, fell back one spot this last race because he wasn't in it. Know that Colton Herta, with his second place, jumped forward in the standings. I'll just share this, and this is not picking on some of the older drivers at all, but we cannot ignore the fact that in the top seven in the championship, 
The top two are 24 or younger. Joseph is what? He's fourth. He's what, 29, 30, whatever it is. But you look at Renus in sixth, who's what, 20, 21? Colton, who's 21, 22? Four of the top seven are these very young, next generation. All they do is eat, sleep, and race. There's nothing else in between. Constant training. All they've ever known is to drive the car to a thousand million percent and do crazy things to get speed out of the cars that some of the veterans didn't grow up in that era. That's not how you did things. You left a little bit of time in your pocket, little tiny safety margin, and that's how you have a really strong championship finish. These kids are rewriting it. And so that's where... And I'm not saying Sebastian's leaving anything on the table. He's a exhaust himself type driver, but just has been, right? Like that guy's effort that he puts in behind the wheel. Honestly, never questioned. But you look at the drivers and the teams that have adjusted and adapted to this very new approach of, oh, wow. Like these guys are just truly zeroed out any margin of error that has to apply to pit stops to complement that driving style, that engineering style. Tire programs are being reshaped to adapt to this. I look at what's been happening with the 14 program this year, and there's a lot of talent there. There really is. There's also just enough of the little margins, the little routine errors, the... Do we have the best of the best in every area to say that, hey, whatever result we get, that's all we could get? I don't know if that's true. I don't know if we can say that. And I'm not talking about money and size of team, right? Uh, No one would accuse Dale Coin Racing of having the biggest team, the biggest anything. And yet, Romain Groschon is currently sitting 11 points behind Sebastian, and he's done three fewer races. Romain also had a terrible weekend in Detroit where he more or less finished last both days. It wasn't exactly last, but close enough, right? Imagine how much higher he would be in the championship, missing three of the ovals so far if Detroit was just a little bit kinder to him. So... Do I think Romain is any better than Sebastian? I don't. Do I think that the coin team is getting a hell of a lot more out of themselves on a limited budget than the Foyt team on a limited budget as well? I think that's the case. So there's just something to think about here. Uh, It's tough. I mean, just a little crazy quick sidebar. I loved working IndyCar. I was very good at certain stages. There are also times where, for whatever reason, I might not have been super motivated. Might have not really enjoyed my time. Might have hated the team, team manager, the whomever, and I had an attitude, and I didn't give things my all. And granted, at those in those instances, and there weren't many, but in those instances, it was with a team that wasn't great, so it really wasn't going to stand out. But if we're talking about a better team, one that had real potential of strong finishes, in that headspace that I was in, I should have been canned. Hey, man, 
love you. Uh, let's talk whenever you get whatever it is figured out in your head or your life or whatever it is that's keeping you from being your best. Again, we love you. But you in this non-optimal space in your life, profession, or whatever right now, it's dragging us down. And we don't all love and respect, whatever. All hate, go away, you suck, Pruitt, whatever it would be. But I can tell you for sure, I've been there. Uh, I've been in a place where teams said, look, I don't know if this is going to work out much longer. And I didn't disagree. I was miserable. And frankly, I appreciated them recognizing it because I probably would have just kept going just because I wanted the income and needed the income. So am I saying any of that's the case on Sebastian's car? No, again, I'm not claiming that I have any great insight. Just telling you, you're going into the pits in whatever position and you leave five spots down. Maybe years ago in IndyCar, that wouldn't have been as big of a liability. These days, any, any, expose your neck the tiniest bit. I'm rewatching the uh, Wu Tang of Mikes and Men uh, documentary, which is just the best. Um, you better protect your neck. That's all I'm saying. I'm going to bring a little Wu Tang in here. Um, you better protect your neck these days because the slightest exposure and uh, you are done for. So, love the question. I think we're going to have at least two out of the three. If I'm concerned about one, it's Pagano. If by chance Roger Penske opts to not pick him up full time, I am struggling a little bit to see who else in the series would be clamoring to hire him full time, which is a crazy thing to say about a guy that recently won the Indy 500, who is sitting fifth in the standings right now, and who is very good at scoring points, but not necessarily threatening from the front of the field. I think a year ago, maybe a little bit different. Right now, if there's an opening, a paid drive, where might he go? Again, if there are changes at Aaron McLaren SP and that second car opens up, going back to the team could be a thing. I... Just saying, uh, Simon has not been a match for Will or Joseph on raw pace and overall threat for a little while. Yeah, that Pato Ward kid's not going to make it any easier. So that might be a question mark. If we're talking about Andretti Autosport, you know, Maybe Michael sees a bigger picture and says, okay, I don't know if this guy's going to be a routine race winner, but he is really good at you know getting at or near the podium, so maybe that's a good thing to go for. Plus, we know he's very special at the Indy 500. No argument there. That could be something to consider. So just saying, Simon's the only one that stands out right now as a little bit under question mark. Uh I haven't spoken to Seb about this, so none of this is inside knowledge, but I don't know how many more years Sebastian wants to do IndyCar full-time. I don't know if his fight to get back to full-time is something that he was thinking of, well, I just want to have one more year, 
or if he wants to have more years. I know that the way things ended at coin, very dissatisfying. Unless some really special things happen here, he's not going to have a wonderful championship position when the season's done. Not what he wants, right? If it's not top seven, top eight, I don't think he's going to be super happy. Would lead me to believe he'd want to come back and do this again next year. I think other people might look at that 14 car and say, yeah, there's definitely potential there. I don't know how many other drivers would be really fighting to get into it if the team decided they wanted to make a change. So I think we're going to have all three back full-time. I'm only willing to really push and say two. So let's see. Where else can I go here? Next, we're going to go to our pal Max Lightshoe. We're going to steer things, as he says, a positive direction. Asks, what's gone right between Ray Hall, Letterman, Landing, and Racing, and Hy-V, a lovely, what, grocery store, I think? I don't know if they sell more. I've never been to one. We don't have them out here in California, but I look forward to going to one because it sounds like they're awesome. Uh, it says, it seems like they're adding races every week. My local store is decked out in IndyCar cutouts, posters, and deals. What have RLL done to get them so excited? And how can other teams replicate that? I don't know. It's a great question to ask Bob Rahal, though, and probably Graham as well. I'm sure Graham was involved in that. I have to believe that the owner, founder, chief marketing officer, somewhere in there, Max, we're going to find a serious IndyCar fan. Not just a racing fan, but an IndyCar fan. It's just too rare to get a marketing sponsorship deal together with a company and have this kind of output because I've seen Jim DeBosick and a number of other folks send me photos of, hey, I went in to buy a something, and good Lord, it's the 45 car everywhere um too many folks just sending too many things that make you believe yes there is something very special taking place here and that doesn't really happen when it's a company that's never been involved in racing has no grasp of racing they're doing it because the numbers make sense oh here's an audience in a region that makes sense to us at a price point that makes sense like none of this stuff is cold business it all appears to be passion-filled and fueled by passion. And so I don't have a specific answer for this, Max, but I can just tell you that it appears Rahal Letterman-Lanigan and High v have found a wonderful relationship to grow. Obviously, on the racing side, a lot of history, a lot of everything. I'm guessing that founder, president, CEO, CMO, whatever, knows of Bob, knows of Graham. This is just something that looks like, wow, there's some amazing people on the sponsor side who are stoked to be here. So, yeah, to your point, boy, uh, I wish that every sponsor acted and behaved in this manner. Let's get to another first-time questionnaire from Lanair White. Hey, Lanair says, first time, long time. 
headed to Mid-Ohio for the first time with weekend tickets? Should we also get grandstand seats? Or should we or where should we set up to watch? Also says some nice things about what I do for the IndyCar community, and you don't gotta say that, Lanair. Well, this is my this is a track where I apply my semi-standard answer, but I hope you appreciate that it's not just being said as a rote response. There are some tracks that are boring as heck and get a grandstand ticket and sit and you will be like a plant for however many days sitting in the sun and really not moving. Uh, But getting maybe a little bit of a tan or something. Mid-Ohio is not that track. So if you want to do the cool thing of communal sporting enjoyment and feeding off the energy of shoulder-to-shoulder type crowd, knowing that many of us haven't had that experience for a long time, you might get a grandstand seat somewhere. Um, You know, again, totally wide open if that's your preference. Maybe the keyhole would be the place because a lot of stuff goes down there. A lot of, I thought you opened the door for me. And the other driver says, no, why would I do that? I don't like you. I don't want you to finish in front of me. And they hit. And fists are... It looks like I might be able to sneak around 20 feet in this direction that I didn't before. And what can I see from there? What's going to not just look different? Are there better sounds reverberating off of whatever? Who knows? Other maybe final, final thing. A lot of camping goes on there. This is more on the the outside of the track. You find a lot of fun and really good folks. A lot of great IndyCar fans, lovers of life. You see, if you, I don't know which drivers or teams you might be a fan of, but whatever it is, don't be surprised if you see some folks wearing a shirt representing that team or driver that you love, doing a little cookout or camping or whatever. Don't hesitate to say hi. They're probably going to invite you over to partake in something to enjoy. That's another really awesome aspect about Mid-Ohio. Road America as well, and, you know, they're not not a ton, but there are enough tracks where we could say that, that, yeah, uh, there really is kind of a walk and talk and meet and greet, and we're all family here feeling. Mid-Ohio is among the tops on that list every year. So really happy for you, Lanair. Thanks for sending in. For the first time, sand to you as well, cold phone, and who knows, we might have some more. But let me know, uh, let us know, Lynn, uh, Lynnair. We're, we're wanting to get that update here as soon as we get through mid-Ohio. Uh, Daniel Kincaid, ooh, you're going to get me in trouble here. Uh, let's see, Alex Pelos finishes on natural terrain road courses, our first at Barber, third Indy GP, and first at Road America. With those... Being four of the seven remaining races, depending on if they replace Toronto, which we know they aren't, is he the clear favorite for the championship? Working on a mid-season thought blast story, and I was hoping to get through and get it done before Road America. Had I done that, the leadoff would have been Pato Award. And coming out of Road America, I'm going to switch that up and put Alex Pillow at the top to talk about him and the remarkable things we're seeing from him and the number 10 car team. Is he championship material? I have to say yes. 
giving a little bit of what I'm going to be writing about. I never want to make the things that I write feel like, well, I've already heard that, so why am I reading it? But he's the big revelation of the season. I don't know if I'm. that's a secret, but the fact that he's become the revelation of the season, I think that's the giant surprise. So this is just having to acknowledge ignorance, my own ignorance, and of whomever else who might not have held Pelot in that stratospheric regard coming out of his rookie season. What he's shown us is that while his rookie year with Coin showed promise, but wasn't amazing, if we're just looking at results, right? Uh, good, but not great. Strictly talking about where he was when the checkered flag waved, right? Good, uh, right? Had that podium at Road America, so that was awesome to start off there. Finished, what, seventh or so, I think, in the, the second round. Um, that was his best weekend of the year. Within the first, what, four races, I think, of 2020, it never got better. There was, what, I think one other top ten late in the year, but there was a lot of promise. Not a lot of fulfillment, though, beyond that podium at Road America. What we didn't know was... All the kid needed was to get a year under his belt to learn. He is very, very, very Colton Herta-like in that capacity. Big brain, super high processor, processing speed. Get him to all the tracks once. I realize that there's some this year that he's never been to, Detroit being one of them. But get him to all the tracks, the majority of the tracks he'll be racing on, and allow him to digest. And what we have in year two of him knowing and grasping the majority of the places that we're going to is someone who looks like he's been doing this for 10 years. That's the huge thing where you go, wow, uh, boy, this kid sure looks like he is on something very special. And we need to respect that. And so the only question mark, and this is the thing, right? Hey, what have we learned from Alex Polo this year? Do not underestimate his capabilities. So I realize I'm kind of maybe underestimating his capabilities again, but... Do I think he is battle-hardened, win the championship, pull out a gutsy drive that, whether it's for victory or some sort of stretching out a, a points advantage through some sort of performance that gets him the title? I don't know, because I haven't seen it yet. He hasn't done it yet. So I don't know if it's doubting him so much of as... I haven't seen the evidence of that yet because he hasn't been put in that position. Whereas Joseph Newgarden has, Scott Dixon has, uh, run down the list of some other perennial contenders, and you go, okay, yeah. And there actually aren't a lot now that I'm having to think about it. Uh, there are some who did it years ago, but I'm talking right now. Um, there aren't many who we could look at and say, oh, yeah, total gamers. 
battle-tested, been through this. We know that they can and will deliver. Don't know if Dixon's going to win a title this year. Don't know if New Garden will. But we, without doubt, have seen the evidence and know they're capable. Still got to see that from a Pillow. Still got to see that from a Pato Award, from a Renus VK, Colton Herta, and so on. Again, these next-generation badasses. Once they can and do, they might do it this year, one of them. Alex being obviously the topic for right now. If they can, well, then, boy, we never ask that. We never question that. We know for sure that they can. Do I think the kid is capable? I do. Um, What I'm looking forward to is a race where he has to fight back a bit. And I don't mean from, you know, 15th to 1st, but just, hey, maybe you were on pole. Maybe you led the first X amount of laps, but then, again, a pit stop problem. Someone hits you and you got to change or fix something at the next stop and it takes you a little bit longer or whatever. Someone knocks you off the road and you lose four spots and there aren't many laps left. Can you gather it up? get those tires clean and go back on an epic charge to either get the win or finish second, but recover from a, Oh man, that sucked. That's what we often see at least once in a title bid in a real championship bid. So I gotta believe he has the potential to do that. Um, just gotta see it though. So I don't know if I'd position him as favorite, Daniel, but I would say that I would be shocked if he's not in the top three in the standings once the season is done. Last, maybe little thing to note here, and it maybe uh, piggybacks well with Nathan Wolfel's question of, hey, Marshall, it's clear Pelot is very talented. Is it time we start talking about him as the heir apparent? The lead driver with Chip Ganassi Racing once Scott Dixon decides to hang it up, if he ever does. Would like to see just a little bit more speed on average from the nine car this year, and it hasn't been vastly lacking. Not saying that there's any kind of, oh boy, they're off a little bit. No, but just that little extra thing where you go, wow, okay. Road America, obviously, weird weekend, the debris setting things back, and you know they went through a lot, recovered, finished super well in fourth. Just saying, though, it's been a little bit, been a little while since the holy cow Scott Dixon is P1 going for pole and going to go rip people's heads off in the race. Hasn't lost that ability. Absolutely expect him to do that. Know that he has those two poles this year, one by points, one by just being him at the Indy 500. But, again, uh 500 a little bit wacky, didn't play out the way that it should have for him. But just saying, if Dixie's going to get title number seven, I think we're going to need to see more than, hey, he's on or around the podium a lot. A couple of the kids that are trying to keep him out of that seventh title, not saying they're always on the podium, but they are driving like their careers depend on it. And Dixon's career doesn't depend on a seventh title. Just saying that those who are currently in front of him 
are on a mission like life comes to an end if they don't beat him. And it'd be interesting to see how the team responds. Another thing I should mention here about Palo, and yes, Nathan, this is what they've been looking for, by the way. They've been looking for this for a number of years, for someone who can be their guy. Uh, It certainly looks like Alex is that guy um, to continue whenever Dixie decides to, uh, to retire. But we also have to give a lot of credit on the 10 car to Chief Mechanic Rick Davis, who's been super... Yoda, Buddha, coach, you name it. Uh, far more than just turning of wrenches, but you know, really integrating Alex into the team culture, giving him advice, just being that beautiful resource for him. And the guy who never talks, <laughs> who doesn't like to be interviewed, who doesn't, who just doesn't care about any of that stuff, only cares about performance. That being Julian Robertson, his race engineer. These two have found something very special that works for them. Uh, throw in Chris Simmons, their performance director, guru, guy. Uh, there's a lot of people behind Polo and Dixie, but uh, there's a lot of folks behind Polo's rise that make this possible. Uh, you remove Julian Robertson. We're not talking about Polo being a multiple race winner this year. You remove Ricky Davis. I don't think we're having this conversation. You pull Simmons. I don't think we're having this conversation. We're talking about a guy who's finishing well, but as a unit, the 10 car has been the revelation of the year. Uh, That's pretty awesome. So let's move on to, we're going to try and rattle through as many as we can here before we say farewell. When we go to full of BMP, from Reddit, uh, not sure if we've had a question from you before, and if so, I apologize. Uh, can we get a better pit crew for Romain Grosjean, please? He was awesome on track, but he lost way too many places in the pits. But on the other hand, it gave us more chances to watch him making super ballsy overtakes. Uh, he says the one on Graham was a potentially overtake of the year. It's really weird. Because I feel like this same comment, and I'm not positioning this on you, full of BMP, but it feels like the, oh my gosh, could we please replace this driver's crew? They're just killing them every race. I feel like I've heard that from about half the field and some who've won races this year. So I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, All I can say is, yeah, I think just symptomatic, emblematic, uh, automatic, multimatic, something matic. Coming back to the uh, the Foyt Bourdais thing that I was mentioning, things have gotten so hyper close and so hyper intense that yeah, any little misstep is now being magnified like it's a end of the world type scenario. I don't know if I pin anything overly heavy on the uh, coin team here, but yeah, anytime a car is going in in a position and not coming out in the same, um, yeah, calls for firings and public floggings seem to be the norm. Uh, let's go to Eric Franklin. Story and a question, he says. Sat with the gent who is an Elkhart Lake, quote, summer resident. 
who didn't seem to know a lot about IndyCar, but he did ask, are they ever going to bring back those LED panels um, that told you their position and push to pass status? Says, I'll let you answer that dead horse if you want. Um, My question, Romain Groschamp was a star creating spectacular racing with everyone. Were you familiar with Romain's driving style in the latter series leading into F1? Is this seemingly newfound willingness to stuff it in something he did before F1? As we all see, nobody lasts long driving an F1, like that in F1. Uh, if the team doesn't clip your ears, the stewards will. I love this question, Eric, and I wanted to uh, to get to it for one reason. Well, you're talking about LED panels, my favorite subject. So um, I don't know about the LED panels, by the way. Uh, I have spoken with Jay Fry about it and the new car, and I don't remember what the answer was. But I'm going to keep pushing for it because, darn it, the world's been off its axis without them. But the part that I, I wanted to uh, get to here swiftly is this. I don't recall Romain being a bull in a china shop in GP2 and, and whatnot, junior formula. Got to keep in mind, though, the big difference between Formula 1 and IndyCar. Formula 1 cars cannot make contact with one another. Because if they do, things break. Uh, Either important things like suspension, and then you no longer are competing in the motor race, or the million yards of little aero bits and pieces, uh, which influence your car's ability to be consistent and fast. And so Formula One style is don't touch anybody ever. Don't get hit. Don't Don't get touched by anybody ever or your race is more or less ruined. The thing that we've seen him adapt to here is the realization of, oh, well, it's not like I want to hit you or get hit, but I have picked up quickly that in order to get the most out of the car and in racing conditions where we are in a multi-car combat for whatever position, I can actually do some more rough house tactic type performance maneuvers. And so I love his realization fairly quickly here too, Eric, that, you know, I can stuff this thing down going into turn five at road America. And guess what? We might bang wheels or I might hit your side pod or you might hit mine or whatever. And ah, these suckers can take it. Yeah, and of course, there could be a little bit of carbon fiber damage or there could be whatever, but this wheel-to-wheel type contact, not so much nose-to-tail or whatever else, but, you know, real work, just kind of, you know, uh, slamming into each other, one football player to the other at the line of scrimmage, that's something you can do. So that's, I would say, one of the final things he needed to pick up and he's done that. And Road America showed us that, Eric, because was there a driver who was more aggressive? And again, I'm not saying hitting like intentionally hitting, but just trying to pull off a little risky, but, you know, hey, I'm damn it, I'm going through if I can, tight passes, and eh, if we have a little bit of contact, whatever, driver than Roman? I don't think so. And it was just, again, fun to watch, and it seemed like I'm just observing from trying to read from his driving style last weekend. 
he really did seem to enjoy it and be happy and be like, cool. You know, uh, Towns and Bell is talking about elbows out. And I know someone sent in a complaint about him using that phrase and I don't know, whatever. Uh, but this is total to me, like MMA sharpening your elbows and, uh, yeah, ground and pound, ground and pound, Groschon. That's a new hashtag. We've got to come up with hashtag ground and pound, Groschon. That's the guy that I saw emerge last weekend. And if that guy stays with us, don't do it at Gateway. But if that's the guy that stays with us, uh, if that uh, comes through, I don't know why I'm struggling to say words. I'm sorry. But if that's who stays with us for the rest of the year, it's going to be awesome. So love it, love it, love it. Great recognition here. Thanks for sending that in. Eric Franklin. Uh, Eric Harkreader. Look, it's a... An embarrassment of Eric's. We're so fortunate here. Uh, it seemed like Jack Harvey had a very strong finish on the cards, and they took a big gamble, basically saying win or fall way back. Uh, the broadcast said something along the lines of, they're way back in point, so why not go all in? Uh, Mike Shank has previously said pretty clear incremental goals to move up that program up. Uh, Indy first, then six races the next year, then 10, then full season. That gamble smelled a bit of desperation rather than secure a solid finish and move into the top 10 in points. says, is MSR feeling undue pressure to produce a win uh, in the near future and get away from the slow build mentality? If so, where is that pressure coming from? Uh, A hindsight thing, Eric, we could apply all those items as, hmm, let me scratch my chin and ask and try and deduce what is what. I think in the moment they realized that Things hadn't gone, although qualifying was super impressive. Things didn't go awesome in the early part of the race. Trying to maximize their results. Said, hey, we're going to try this long stretch fuel gamble and see if we can make it to the end and maybe we save a stop. And didn't work out, obviously. The approach that they have, mindset-wise, I don't know if I can really point at anything negative there. The one being of, at all points in time, we're going to try and do whatever is best for us to get the strongest finish possible. Sometimes, though, you have to temper that with, okay, all right, things have slid a little bit, we're not necessarily going to be fighting for a win anymore okay but do we roll the dice or do we try and stick to a little more traditional run i realize we maybe are not going to go flying towards the front of the field a little silly to think that we're just going to jump right up and uh, get back to p3 at the finish or whatever but do we maybe not roll the dice that's where i would say Character-wise, yeah, that's a component of Mike Shank, Meyer Shank Racing. is definitely the, we're the underdogs. we got to do something a little bit different if we're going to try and show out. I mean, you look at where Jack was, what, uh, early in the race, right? Things had gone a little bit sideways, Um Obviously, starting third, as I mentioned, that was great. Uh, Getting to that first pit stop, what he emerged from that in, I think, like ninth or so. 
uh, jumped back up when some more stopped, and I think he was running fourth or whatever, coming out of that first yellow, uh, pitted like everybody, in that, or just about everybody in that second yellow, came out in eighth, was doing okay, uh, ended up getting that third yellow. When that arrived, he was sixth, as I'm looking at right now, pitted. At the uh, on the last lap of that yellow, right uh, lap thirty six in this fifty five lapper, there's no way you're getting to the checkered flag without a caution, um, some sort of let's slow everything down significantly for a while and uh, let you bank fuel. We did get that super late Ed Jones lasted one lap type yellow wasn't going to be enough. Just to the the overriding point here, um, Jack was sitting sixth when that third, again, it's only two laps, but around Road America takes a little while. He was sitting sixth there. Uh, He was not on what we would call an alternate strategy. He had stopped with everybody else on lap 24. This is the part where I would say there needs to be some evolution within the team to realize that, no, we're not underdogs. We might still be newish, but we need to start behaving in ways that tell everybody we can be okay with starting third, falling to sixth, and finishing there, thereabouts. Again, who knows if he gets up to fifth? If we're just saying following the uh, strategy that everyone else was on in the group that he was with, if he just held sixth place and had New Garden's problem at the end of the race, would have been fifth. Realize it isn't third or a win, but back to your point. That's some pretty decent points compared to 17th. And he's now holding 14th in the championship. A little ways back from Rossi. Decent gap over Hunter Ray. So he's he's good in 14th, but he's 14th. I'm not saying that finishing 5th or 6th would have shot him up into the top 10, but it's just a mindset thing. So every team is always trying to do their best on the day given the set of challenges and obstacles they're dealt. This, I would say, you could easily classify as firing one into their feet. They, for whatever reason, decided we're going to gamble like this is some sort of, we think there's a win if we get a yellow. And, uh, you know, there'd been more yellows than usual, so I can understand why that rationale might have been supported a little bit. But I'd actually push back and say, man, you weren't going to win. The only way you were is if luck entered into the equation. And since you weren't running 12th and we're like, well, F it, (laughs) we're definitely going nowhere here. We may as well gamble because we've effectively already lost and 12th place points aren't going to do anything for us. Really? This is one that I would say, if you could have it back, you'd want it back. Uh, Let's go to Ed Joris. Have you seen anything funnier than Oliver Askew's unintentional riding a bike comment? Yeah, not until I said shifting gears. And I don't mean mine was funnier, but in terms of like, oh, my God, are you, you, you really didn't think that one through before it came out your mouth. No, he won. He absolutely won. 
Uh, let's see. Where do we go next? Nathan Wolfel, you're back again. Do you think Askew potentially had enough fuel to make to the end of the race? If he'd stayed out one more lap and was able to take advantage of the caution caused by Ed, I don't think he could have stayed out another lap. That's the thing. Uh, if that yellow happens two laps earlier, maybe. Or, I'm sorry. If it happens not just earlier, but was of a longer duration, then there might have been something to allow him to stretch and maybe make it on crazy fumes. It just happened too late and was too short. So, no, I don't think there was a real uh, opportunity there, Nathan. Jerry Suddeth, how you doing, pal? How would you rate Kevin Magnuson's performance this weekend? Seems like he started to get the car cars more and more as the weekend went on. Yeah, I mean, the guy is just ridiculously talented. No question for me, Jerry, that given a test day there, or so, who knows, given something where his first laps in the car weren't at the start of practice, I think we would have seen a far more Magnuson-esque performance throughout the weekend. Uh, he did what every new guy or gal does who's never driven the car uh, and or has never been on red tires in a qualifying situation, and that was you didn't get the most out of the car. And so... Is that a Magnuson detracting point? No. <laughs> uh, every rookie coming into IndyCar in their first qualifying session using Firestone Reds, and I don't care where, uh, it's the same thing, basically. Of course, there might be a couple of exceptions throughout the years, but by and large, 90% of the time, it's the same thing. Hey, you didn't qualify well because you've never really interacted with this tire in a true qualifying scenario. I know you might have done a qualifying sim in practice, but there were a lot of cars on track, and you know usually there's something that prevents it from being a spot-on replica of a true qualifying run. But similar thing here, Jerry, where, yeah, uh, didn't get the most out of the tires, qualifying position wasn't as strong as it could have been. No surprise there. Seemed like in the race was doing well but when you're mired that far back in the pack you know you gotta you gotta acknowledge that it's a little bit hard to do crazy crazy ninja i'm going to the top 10 just i'm gonna pass everybody you know when you're that far back starting that far back it usually means one thing car is not as awesome as it could be so no doubt that they improved it, but let's not suggest that Kevin had a car that was ready for third, and all he needed to do was just get in and drive it on Sunday, and it was going to go to third. Wasn't a great weekend for Aaron McLaren SP. You know, Pato didn't do a lot in qualifying. What did he finish? Ninth or something like that. Wasn't really a factor. So if you figure that Kevin was about 10 spots behind with, you know, minimal car knowledge and all kinds of minimal knowledge, I think you got to look at the weekend and say, hey, dude, you've finished way the F back. You're 24th. You qualified 21st. And it wasn't a disaster by any means, man. Like, <laughs> did a really good job. So, but we shouldn't be surprised. This guy is an elite driver. So what does this mean for me and others who uh, are admitted Kevin Magnuson fans? Yeah, just got to hope opportunity opens up in the near. 
Let's go to Wendy Carr. Um, you sent in a couple of things. Send this in next week about women engineers. Um, I will take more time next week to get into that. You're also asking to break down the difference between the various engineers in IndyCar. Happy to do all of that. Just it's a 12-part question late in the show. And, uh, yeah, we won't get to much more. So send this back in next week if you would. Uh, Jim Kaiser will hopefully place that towards the uh, top of the question list. Since we have no racing this coming weekend, next week's show should not hopefully be overburdened with questions. John Wojnar, oh, brother, you're trying to kill me here. MP, we often talk about drivers on the hot seat, but what engineers or strategists are on the hot seat? Can't imagine Aaron McLaren SP's Blair Pershbacher is feeling confident after two consecutive mechanical failures and nearly launching Felix into the Canadian Club distillery across the river at Detroit. Well, dear John Wojnar, who's one of the leaders of the Pruday kind of listener group, um, got to pull, pull you back on this one a little bit, my friend. Blair is the race engineer. He is not a man who picks up wrenches and does anything on the car. If he does, I, then I apologize and I'm wrong and he's totally unique. But as a race engineer, he is not responsible for nuts, bolts, state of preparation, and so on. So whether it was Felix, whether it was the next day with Oliver in the engine, whether it was Kevin on Sunday, truly, he's the last guy uh, you would point a finger at and say, ooh, hot seat. Uh, I know that I mentioned this, it seems like at least once a month, and I don't mind mentioning it again. Keep in mind that when we were all just picking ourselves up off the ground with Robert Wickens' debut, pole-winning debut in IndyCar, running up front, nearly winning here and there, and doing amazingly at Phoenix's first oval and finishing second and doing all these crazy things. You know who his race engineer was? It was a guy named Blair Pershbacher. So he's very good at his job. Uh, doesn't mean that every race engineer and driver gel. I have no knowledge of that being the case with Blair and Felix. Just saying that I know that having been a race engineer that not every driver I've worked with has either liked me, and it's pretty obvious. I don't just mean like, hey, Pruitt, you as a person suck, but just like, okay, we're not talking the same language here, and you're going to hinder my career. I've also worked with drivers where I've done my best to hide that. But, yeah, uh, boy, uh, they sure don't make my job easy, and we're not going to go very far. We know that Blair is very talented. Felix is very talented. Uh, I hope that those two have a great relationship and build upon it. But I, if I'm the person making decisions, I make sure that Blair Persbacher's on my team for a long, long, long time. I don't want to get too far into this right now, John, in terms of engineers and strategists who should be on a hot seat. I can't, there aren't many that come to mind on the engineering side. And... I just need to raise my hand here and say that I have yet to do the full deep dive between driver and engineer that I've been wanting to do to come to accurate thoughts on this. 
I know I can say, hey, this driver's been having a tough year. He and his engineer, do they maybe need a, a break or a divorce or whatever? But that would just be general opinion, not something that's also been complemented by a proper look through things. So maybe I'll get back into this a little bit deeper at some point in the near future. But yeah, just on the topic of Blair, um, zero to do with any of the issues with the seven car over the last three events. Uh, Andrew Miller, regarding Toronto, I presume it came down to no promoter being willing to host a double header at short notice. I don't know. I, I really think IndyCar just said, hey, we're good at 16. Uh, there are some other things, you know, where you have to speak with the teams. I don't know if they got buy-in from all of them, and that's a buy-in from a standpoint of, hey, remember last year where COVID hit and we are supposed to have 17 races, but we only had 14 and we dropped a lot of races and did a bunch of double headers, which is great. But some sponsors really maybe didn't care so much about the double header at this region where they don't sell much or do much and really did want from the money that they paid for the year, really did want to go to one or two or three of the other ones that were taken off the list and aren't seeing the total value and they want money back from the team. Or if it's a multi-year, keep what we sent you, but we're going to short you in 2021. Like uh, the reduction of events certainly was a hard thing that teams have been dealing with and are currently dealing with financially right now. This is just total hope, but I hope that teams were consulted and they all said, okay, uh, we can get away with not replacing Toronto because, except for very few drivers, we've only got two Canadians in the field, the vast majority of the teams, probably not going to get a lot of argument back from their sponsors that they aren't going out of North, I was North America. Gosh, I'm an idiot. Outside of America to Canada. So I think in this one instance, probably something that most teams, but not all said, okay, yeah, you know, we can, we can do that. Let's just stick with 16 uh, instead of a double header somewhere else. Uh, let's see. Just going to scroll. Hey, you don't have that many questions left. That makes me happy. Um, James P. from the Twitter says, so when a team higher up has to give one of their drivers a talking to, what type of talks do they give? And when you say a team higher up, I'm assuming you mean owner, manager, etc. Says, I imagine Roger Penske gives, I'm very disappointed in you. Chip yells at you and bursts a blood vessel, and with Brian Herta, you're not sure if he's mad or not. Ah, how funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, a lot of it depends on the message that needs to be given, and I know that is a generic response. It's not meant to be. What do I mean by that? If a Chip Ganassi driver needs to get tore into... That's going to be a Chip Ganassi. If there's a, hey, not necessarily put the arm around the person, but more of a, hey, we need to have a talk, okay? We need to, to, we need to fix a couple things, realign some things. Maybe you, you've strayed off course a little bit. Could be a Barry Wanzer. Could be a Mike Hall. 
Um, could be a couple others possibly, but yeah. Um, a Brian Herta is definitely going to be the, I'm disappointed in you. Michael Andretti is probably going to be the one, uh, spitting hot fire. Um, good cop, bad cop there. Uh, Roger, I think you might have drivers or whomever in tears uh, if RP says I'm very disappointed in you. I don't know if I've ever seen a team owner in any form of motor racing where the drive, where everyone just wants to be never seen in a negative light. Like the the... And it's not like a, a pleasing thing, like, oh, I just always want to make him happy. It's more of the, oh, I don't ever want him to be disappointed in me because it would crush my little baby soul. I don't know if I've ever come across a team owner with that more than Roger. So I think he has to realize that knowing how he is received as this Santa Claus father Jesus figure type by many might have to be careful with how he presents things because he could easily, you know, he could have some people just in a serious state of feeling so bad about themselves because they all just never want to disappoint him. Um, as I understand, Tim Sindrick's pretty good at dropping the hammer if, if it needs to be dropped. And I've never seen Tim to be a loud, shouty, yelly guy, but. Like if I'm casting an IndyCar movie and I need the cold-blooded assassin who, no emotion, blank slate, uh, feels nothing after dropping body after body, it's Tim Sindrick, without it. I'm not even, we're not auditioning the role. It goes straight to him. So none of that's said in a mean or critical way, but like, yeah, like, whoa, boy. You don't ever want Tim mad at you kind of thing uh, from what I've heard because, yeah, it's it can be a little like, please don't kill me, Mr. Sendrick, with your eyeballs. So, anyways, thanks for the fun question, James. Uh, let's see. Ryan Terpstra, Stitch Turner, Jeremiah Morell, you collectively have the penultimate question about Jimmy Johnson. Uh, Ryan Terpstra says, Townsend Bells seems to be a little bit critical of Jimmy Johnson after a spin on Sunday. Haters have been critical since day one. I don't want to frame a question with this, but I'm happy he's an IndyCar. He's good for the sport. I'll let you go down the rabbit hole wherever it takes you. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you of allowing me to do that, Ryan. Um, Stitch Turner, by the way, our pal Stitch, a man who brings mirth and hilarity uh, to all things in life, says, aren't we a bit late in the season for Jimmy Johnson to keep having a single car spin in what seems like every race? In watching Jimmy and his formative laps at Laguna Seca in November, which followed one test or two tests, whatever it is, but the thing that was obvious, I'd initially write about it. I might have mentioned it on the show, um, but he had multiple spins. Not a total surprise. Guys, totally new to this. Thousand percent new to high downforce, lightweight cars that have a lot of power as well. So if you think, well, hey, but hasn't he driven a Daytona prototype? 
yes, those were hot pieces of garbage uh, with, you know, not much more power than an Indy Lights car. Well, hey, didn't he drive DPIs? Yes, true. Faster, more down. Well, they got serious downforce, maybe 100, 150 less horsepower. But, yeah, done well there. Not a rocket in those, though. And not necessarily living on the ragged edge when he was behind the wheel. Still learning a lot. What we know about IndyCar, what we've discussed already about the youth in particular exposing this new reality, it is you're either at 100 million percent maximum attack at all times or you are nowhere. Indy 500, again, a little bit of an exception. It's always an exception to everything that we do. But So we're now in a state where if you want to be competitive, you have to be living on the ragged edge. Pato Award, the number one example of that, right? oversteer at all times things where you go dude wh- huh that's where we're at uh colton herda same thing it, he might not have the crazy showy oversteer but he's the same like oh my god you never stop attacking the steering wheel you never stop never stop never stop run down the list you can say that about renus polo a little bit of a s- smoother not as visually aggressive but he's aggressive and fast i mean always attacking as well so just want to overstate the obvious here not only is jimmy having to learn indycar learn high downforce lower weight uh more power and a lot of things that he's never had in other forms of road racing but he's also coming in in a year where the kids are pushing the bar to a place that is brutal so if we're talking about gaps and trying to improve and how far off am I, I do feel for him. If we wind the clock back two years, one year, three years, like he's having a radically different season. Um, what it is right now, yeah, he's always looking at and feeling like he's way the heck off, even if he's making big improvements. So I just share all this because... There's one thing that has been obvious dating back to when I was there for that, whatever it was, half day at Laguna when he was in the car. And it was clear then that, hey, he doesn't have a great feel yet for what it's doing when it's at the limit. It's surprising him. That's totally normal. Totally normal. And it's not just an IndyCar. Like when I was... Going through driver school in a 115-horsepower Formula Ford. Hey, I'd never done it. I'd never raced before, so I didn't know what the limit was. But guess who spun a lot and embarrassed himself because the car was talking to me the whole time. I just didn't hear it, didn't know it, wasn't aware. Hey, it's not turning as much as I want it to for the corner. Well, let me apply more steering and more. And guess what? It's eventually going to bite. And then guess what? You've got so much damn steering input that the fronts are now gripping. And it's turned so heavily that guess what? The rear's unweighted and says, hey, dummy, let's go for a spin. I know how many times I did that. It was ugh, felt so stupid. And that's in a car with no downforce and no power and no anything, right? So imagine saying, okay, well, let's do this with 750 horsepower and 5,000 pounds of downforce and 
giant slick tires that you know uh, work wonderfully but again stiff sidewalls and all the things that make hearing what the car is telling you like oh impossible so that's the normal process people coming into indycar or f1 or whatever although i guess we don't really see that in f1 anymore but come into indycar from a totally different form of the sport vehicularly totally different having to pick up the nuances all those things that you would expect were on display in november he spun and he spun and he spun and he spun didn't there again i didn't write about it because it didn't stand out as abnormal it was part of the part of the program normal so back to the main question here what has been the surprise and i know that you know we keep saying he's only had 18 days in an indy car or whatever the number is it's still not a lot but externally having to observe on television it just does not look like he has made a lot of ground on feeling and hearing the car at the limit and so there appear to be very similar things in terms of what I saw six plus months ago. And that is, when's it going to cut loose? When's it going to go? What is the limit? He, he can certainly underdrive the car and never spin, but then in this season where no one gives a millionth of a second away, be way the heck off. Or he can try really, really, really hard. As he's been doing, none of this stems from a lack of effort. But what I don't fully get, which is why I wrote about it in the little rewind column today, the uh, cool-down lap thing, is uh, truly, is it possible to fire up an old Ganassi cart or champ car or rent one from those who use them in vintage racing go rent a skid pad and let's go wear out a lot of tires and let's go have you spin and spin and spin and spin push and push and push turn the wheel more than you should and see how it reacts and do this two three days to the point where you're exhausted but you now have a much greater feel or what the car is telling you about what it's about to do. It, they never surprise you unless there's something drastically wrong with the car. They're always talking to you. It's just whether you learn the language and whether you can hear it when they're speaking in a soft voice. Hey, you go a tiny bit faster and I'm going to spin. Right? In a NASCAR, it's, hey! You go tiny bit faster, I'm going to spin. And they hear it. It's never a question. And a supremely talented guy like Johnson almost never spins and has those problems in cup. Here, it's a whisper. And so the surprise, to your guy's point, can't disagree at all, is I am. I'm a little taken aback by the fact that it seems like Jimmy keeps making the same mistake over and over again. Know that a lot of these tracks is going there for the first time. So, you know, he's having a ton to learn too. How do we make it? So you're not having to have these, I don't know what the limit is moments 
by building up a good database with you. And when I say go rent a skid pad, I don't mean like the little small one where it's about 100 foot across. I mean one of the desert testing facilities somewhere where it's a half mile wide by mile plus long. Let's get up a ton of speed. Let's get third gear, fourth gear, fifth gear, and have you yank the wheel and then try and catch the slide, feel it. Let's do a lot of high-speed slalom-type stuff so you can get a feel for the car moving around. Let's try a variety of things to put you in scenarios where you're going to feel what the back of the car is telling you align that to what your hands are doing with how much steering input you have and how much you're taking off or adding in and how those two items, what you're doing with the steering wheel, how fast you're going, and when the rear of the car is telling you, hey, dude, uh, I'm there, stop. Let's help train you to hear that voice. Yeah, the one surprise so far with Jimmy's education It doesn't seem like he's been able to pick that up. And so you get some of these kind of silly spins where you go, all right, dude, again, I know it's learning curve and so on and so forth, but this seems like some IndyCar 101 stuff that we should be beyond right now. Uh, Hard to argue that. Jeremiah Morrell, you say, what can you tell us about Scott Pruitt joining the 48 car effort? Is he filling the Frankiti role exclusively? Uh, How do these coaches fit in together? I just need to reach out to him to get some more details on that. At least as I heard it described, it sounds like he's attached to the hip with Scott and with Scott, with Jimmy. I know that with Dario's formula E commentary role, he can't be there every weekend. So I believe Jimmy was indeed commentating Jimmy. What is wrong with me? Dario was indeed commentating on the Puebla formula E uh, rounds last weekend. So To me, this is not a bad thing at all, obviously. Um, Dario is so good at what he does that I hope that there's no pullback on that when he can be at the races or, you know, when he's not commentating. So at least as I perceive it, Jeremiah, and I'll get more for you and myself on this, it seems additive to Jimmy compared to uh, replacing on the Dario front. We're going to close here with Damien, the IndyCar Brit, and I love this as the last question. Hey, MP, best wishes to you and your loved ones. Is this the best ever IndyCar season? Drama, fantastic racing, you never know who's going to win, all the young guns bring it, four-time Indy 500 winner. I can't remember a season as good as this. It rates right up there, Damien. I'm old enough to have seen many uh, IndyCar seasons, I know that there were some that just blew me away at how awesome they were. Might not have had all the ingredients you mentioned here. You know, might not have been a young gun ingredient or a uh, X-time indie winner being crowned. But this has to be, so far, among the top five that I recall. Um, Even years where there was some dominance, there were some just fascinating elements. 94 is an amazing season. I was there for pretty much all of it. That was great. 88, I absolutely loved. I thought 85 was awesome. 96 was fascinating. Uh, That cracked open the Ganassi era in terms of titles. Then Zanardi doing, I mean, the Zanardi era. 
from 96 to 98. Uh, crazy. Then throw Montoya in 99. Wow. Nuts, right? Early 2000s, some crazy great stuff with uh, Cristiano D'Amata, right? There's some great IRL seasons, some great champ car seasons that followed. We've had some really fascinating stuff, you know, the last decade, too. Uh, with some things not being settled until the very end and a lot of drama as well. So we've ha- we've been blessed to have some great seasons. Not all of them are great, but I would say without doing a year-by-year accounting of all that I've experienced and witnessed, Damien, this certainly does feel like a top fiver. And if it keeps going at the rate that it is, top two or three might be it. So last little note here to mention is I feel, and again, it's feel, which is totally not a measurable thing, but I feel like there's something taking off with IndyCar this year in ways that it has not over the last couple. If I look at the TV numbers, I haven't seen Road America. Hopefully it isn't terrible and counters everything I'm about to say, but it feels like the TV numbers are doing better than expected. I know that looking at the metrics from racer.com, which is just killing it with IndyCar traffic and has been for a while, the numbers are nuts. I know looking at my own silly little week in IndyCar stuff, listener Q&A, this is my most popular podcast. I don't understand it, really. This isn't some false modesty. I don't understand it. I would think the guest show would be the routine number one. It's not. I don't know why, but whatever. Uh, Everything that I'm seeing this year, my own podcast numbers included with the weekend sports cars. I'm sorry, weekend IndyCar. What is wrong with me? Uh, Everything's going down now. I'm making it terrible. Um, everything that I'm seeing, Damien, is rising, and not just tiny little granular, oh, look at you, you got 0.3 of a percent improvement. Uh, it's feeling real. Not crazy gangbusters, the new most popular sport on earth is IndyCar. No, but it does feel like, wow, there's some real things happening. Elio's win, I think, quadruple turbocharged that notion. You throw in crazy stuff at Detroit. You pile Road America on top of that. I know the two Texas races, other than crashes, weren't, you know, uh, they weren't all great. But, hey, Pato with a first-time win. Dixon obviously winning kind of, you know, uh, staple there. Renus winning, holy poop, right? Palo winning, and this and that and the other. Colton doing insane things to win St. Pete. I mean, there haven't been very many stinkers. Uh, Texas is the only one that stands out that wasn't amazing round one at all. Round two got fun. I mean, the crash stood out and caught a lot of attention, but Pato defying physics yet again and getting that win, right? That was really cool. There's just not a lot to pick at, Damien. I mean, I'm sure miserable folks will always find things to be miserable about, but yeah, there's maybe been one race that felt like there wasn't a whole bunch. I know that Colton 
blanking everybody at St. Pete might not have been a joy, but I found a lot of other things that were fascinating in it. Altogether, it feels like it's easy for us to evangelize about this series we love so much and would not have to hide some things or bluff a little bit. It feels like you can be very proud, super, super out loud about it, and have reasons to believe that those you're trying to convert to follow will not only believe but stay and become part of the congregation. So great and well-recognized by you, my friend. Let me go ahead and say one more time thank you to all of you. I love doing this show each week. I'll let you in on the little secret. I do this as much for myself as I do for you because I enjoy this conversational format The questions you send in fit that. They're never dry, boring. Why did this car not finish fourth? Like, no, that's not how we do it. And just all of you who listen, those of you who take time to send things in, the awesome rise in first-timers sending in questions too, uh, these are all just things that make me super happy. So thank you. Thank you for giving me this weekly gift that I do indeed enjoy once we get home from my wife's physical therapy session. Cooper Tires, hey, love you guys too. Justice Brothers, you're not just brothers, you're just a family. TorontoMotorsports.com, we'd like them a little bit too. They're good pals, they're good friends, they do wonderful things. Thanks to everyone who's visited my little merchandise page. It's helping, it's really helping. Thanks to everybody Going to have Alex Pillow, one of our dear friends of the show, and who we're going to induct into the Prue Day, whether he likes it or not. We're going to have an actual IndyCar driver in the podcast Prue Day listener group. He's been a listener for like three years, I think he said. Three to four years, long before he came to IndyCar, and has been listening ever since. So I think just by nature, he's naturally a Prue Day member, so... We're going to have some fun with our pal, Mr. Pillow here, talk about his win and all kinds of stuff. Other than that, I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A, and I will speak to you here very soon. <laughs>